It's Wednesday, September 19th, and this is The Daily Dive. With all the twists and turns that we have with Brett Kavanaugh's confirmation, we find out what's next. A Monday hearing with Christine Blasey Ford, who has accused Kavanaugh of sexual assault. Democrats want Republicans to call other witnesses to testify under oath, but there are still doubts if it will happen at all. Elena Treen, political reporter with Axios, joins us for more details, including what Anita Hill has to say about all this. Next, the president has ordered the declassification of documents related to the early days of the FBI's Russia investigation. Specifically, the president wants to declassify the surveillance application that targeted former campaign advisor Carter Page and a bunch of texts from James Comey and others in the FBI that could show a bias against the president. Kyle Cheney, congressional reporter with Politico, joins us for what this all means for the midterm elections. Finally, a recent scientific mission into the secret ocean layer of California's great white sharks has provided some clues into why these sharks migrate every winter and spring into an area that seemed to be a big, empty void in the sea. Peter Fimwright, environmental writer for the San Francisco Chronicle, fills us in on an area that has become known as the White Shark Cafe. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. I feel so badly for him that he's going through this, to be honest with you. I feel so badly for him. This is not a man that deserves this. The Republicans, and I can speak for myself, we should go through a process because there shouldn't even be a little doubt. They will look at his career. They will look at what she had to say from 36 years ago. And we will see what happens. Joining us now is Elena Treen, political reporter for Axios. Another day and more craziness into the confirmation process of Brett Kavanaugh to be the next Supreme Court justice. We learned that they have set a day for a meeting where Brett Kavanaugh will testify and Christine Blasey Ford will also testify. What do we know about that? The hearing will be on Monday. It will be a public hearing. The chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee, Chuck Grassley, announced this yesterday. And essentially, Brett Kavanaugh, the Supreme Court nominee, will have a chance to clear his name. And Professor Ford would have a chance to tell her side of the story. And this is something that several Democrats had been pushing for because originally earlier this week, it was unclear what was going to happen as there was a scheduled vote on Thursday to happen um, and to try to push Kavanaugh through and onto the bench. But with these allegations, they're going to give both Ford and Kavanaugh a chance to speak and it will be public. So all eyes are kind of on that Monday hearing. Well, we are calling at Axios the hearing of a lifetime. Right. And there's so many parallels to hearings in the past. We're going to get into that in just a moment. The president did have a chance to respond to some of what's going on. He was asked at a press conference with the Polish president, why would there be a problem with the FBI reopening their background investigation into Judge Kavanaugh? And what did he say? He, he said he felt really badly for him. He did. And this was a bit different from what the president had been saying previously. So during that press conference, he said, and I'll just quote him here. I think it's easier to let him speak for himself, that it's a process speaking for all of the Republicans. We want to give everybody a chance to say what they want to say. Um, that's one thing that he said. But the interesting thing was that he said he's totally supporting him and that he believes the FBI shouldn't be involved in this. But they would be the investigative body to go through this. They're not 
not going to do any action unless they're directed so by the White House or the committee? Exactly. So uh, this is kind of boils down to what Senate Democrats have been pushing for is where a lot of these cases, the FBI would look into these allegations more closely, but the Justice Department would be the one to sign off on that. And they've already indicated that they don't think the FBI should investigate. That's, uh, I mean, just part of what we were talking about the other day with these ultimate he said, she said thing. Since the FBI is not going to look into it as of yet and come out with some concrete details, when the hearing happens, when they go to testify, it's really just going to be about judging her character and seeing if she's credible. So if she stumbles in any of her testimony, that could lead senators to believe that her story is not credible at that point. Right. And there's a lot going against what her testimony may be, because there's a lot of open questions. This was about 30 years ago at a high school party, and there's not many tangible facts that people can point to. And it is, like you said, a he said, she said. But at the same time, it's not just worrisome that someone like Ms. Ford might trip up, but also uh, Brett Kavanaugh. And this is something that several Republican officials and sources in the White House have told me and Axios as a whole, that they're really worried that as much as they think Kavanaugh could nail this, they also think that something could go wrong and there could be some sort of stumble. And it really just speaks to the circus of this all. There's also the question of how members on the committee handle right. this and the questioning of it. So there's a lot of question marks. No one is certain how it will go. Of course, Brett Kavanaugh maintains that he's innocent. Everybody has to be very sensitive with the way this is approached. And even the president was asked if he believes that these allegations were political in nature. And for the president to take a step back and say, I don't want to say that, maybe I'll say that in a couple days, but not now. You know, he wants to let everything kind of play out still, too, before anybody gets ahead of themselves. Who are we looking at in the Senate and how many votes can they lose before this is all gone? The folks that are involved in this process that people are most worried about, at least on the Republican side, they're worried about Senator Jeff Flake, the Republican from Arizona, even more so than they are worried about Senator Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski, the two Republican senators who are normally the ones that we have eyes on because they're more moderate Republicans. And as you said, this testimony that we're expecting to hear on Monday is going to be a circus in and of its own. And this has happened before where Anita Hill was called to testify against sexual harassment claims against Clarence Thomas, who is a Supreme Court justice now. And she wrote an op-ed in the New York Times and even the way she started. There's no way to redo 1991, but there are ways to do better. What did she have to say weighing in on this? So she definitely acknowledged that it's a different period. So when she was the one who was kind of in Miss Ford's shoes, uh, she had accused then just or then Supreme Court nominee Clarence Thomas, who is now a Supreme Court justice, of um, making unwanted sexual advances toward her. And that was in 1991. So it was a different time ago when she noted that. But she also emphasized that we are in the midst of this Me Too moment and that it should be different. And that is how she started it. She also laid out some ground rules for senators for this upcoming hearing. And a couple of them, just to note, she said that they should those on the committee refrain from pitting the public interest in confronting sexual harassment against the need for a fair confirmation hearing, which is a bit interesting given her side of things. She thinks that they should select a neutral investigative body with experience in sexual misconduct to also weigh in on this. She emphasized that they shouldn't rush these hearings, that just despite Republicans really wanting to get Kavanaugh on the bench before October, as well as before the November midterm elections, that these things take time and that they shouldn't rush it just for the political side of things. And she also said, finally, referred to Christine Blasey Ford by her name, not just the accuser. 
yeah, she has come forward and and stepped up to the allegations. So give her the respect that she's due. The allegations are different in Anita Hill's case, but in this time frame that we are now, these things do need to be looked at closely. And and as the president did say, the American people need to be very comfortable with who their next Supreme Court justice is. So it's going to be crazy what happens. A key here, I think that kind of embodies all of this in itself, is that the great unknown with this hearing will be the emotion in the room that day. There's so much that can be said from that that may move even people who were initially siding with Kavanaugh. The emotion in the room that day will, I think, be very telling, as well as the consequences if Miss Ford's testimony is credible. Elena Treen, political reporter for Axios. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. The things that have been found over the last couple of weeks about text messages back and forth are a disgrace to our nation. And I want transparency, and so does everybody else. Congressional committees came to me and they wanted this, and I did it based on their request. But I think it's a good thing because we should open it up for people to see. Joining us now is Kyle Cheney, congressional reporter for Politico. The president ordered the declassification of a bunch of documents regarding the investigation into Russian collusion, some surveillance application stuff with regards to Carter Page, the release of texts from James Comey and a few others. So there's a review underway now to see how those documents are going to be declassified. What else do we know about what the president ordered? We're still waiting to figure out how sweeping this order is. And on the surface, it seems to be a pretty major intervention by the president into an investigation involving his campaign. So it's really uncharted territory here. He wants the FISA application, it's a surveillance application for, uh, you mentioned Carter Page, one of his campaign associates, who the FBI spied on for about a year. And he also wants some notes taken by investigators and a text message that FBI Director James Comey and other senior officials sent about the Russia investigation. So really an, a, re- a real intrusion into the FBI's work here. And the thought process is that we'll get to see some of the real reasons that might have triggered the investigation to begin with. The president and Republicans are saying, you know, this is full transparency. Obviously, it's very political. It's coming right before the midterms. But they're hoping to shed a light continuing on that thing that the president keeps saying, that there was no collusion. Beyond that, it's, it's that the Republicans and the president's allies believe that the, the anti-Trump bias in the FBI really triggered them to go full speed ahead on the Russia probe, despite flimsy evidence. Democrats say that's a conspiracy theory. The FBI had good reason to go ahead with the Russia probe, but the president and his allies really think this was they were out to get him, and that by releasing all this, this information, they're going to prove to Americans that, that this is not a legitimate investigation. Democrats are obviously angry at this. They're saying that releasing this stuff would compromise sources and methods. Mm-hmm. I mean, is that a legitimate concern there? Yeah, it's not just Democrats. I mean, even, even the FBI, uh, you know, former national security experts and people who used to work in, in these agencies say, look, these things are classified for a reason. This is not about hiding, you know, embarrassing information to the FBI. This is about legitimately protecting national security. And you put this stuff out there and you jeopardize relationships, you jeopardize people's willingness to talk to the FBI and possibly an ongoing investigation that the Mueller investigation. What does the review process look like to declassify this information? I mean, it's not going to happen immediately. It might take some time. It's very unclear. We've been asking about this, and you know, so as far as we know, there is a declassification review that's undertaken by intelligence community officials. So the Director of National Intelligence, the FBI, other relevant agencies, 
and they would scrub it to make sure that by release, whatever they release does not endanger national security. What that means, we really don't know what that looks like because the president has ordered this stuff declassified. So that's supposed to override ultimately the decision that by the intelligence officials. A lot of the pages have to do with the dossier coming from Christopher mm-hmm. Steele. What are they expecting to illuminate by releasing this stuff? The dossier is really at the heart of this. This is a document that the president has said is absolute fiction, completely concocted to embarrass him and to damage his campaign. The dossier was used uh, in part to get this surveillance warrant on Carter Page. And what Republicans want to show here is that it wasn't, they didn't just use it as, as one piece of evidence. It was their primary piece of evidence. And then that would sort of discredit the surveillance warrant itself. And how does Bruce Orr fit into all this? I, I know they're trying to release some of those notes that he's had of interviews yep. and things like that. What are they hoping to expose with that? Yeah, I mean, I don't envy people trying to keep track of this at home. Um, <laughs> right. Bruce Orr is a senior Justice Department official. He actually still works there, uh, involved in organized crime and, tra- and, and combating organized crime. He had a relationship with Chris Steele, the author of the dossier, from prior work and became a, a conduit, a sort of go-between between, between Steele and the FBI in the campaign and even after the campaign. So Bruce Orr had a lot of information about the origins of all this stuff and, and, and what everyone gotcha. was thinking at the time. Obviously, Republicans in the Trump camp are happy that this stuff will be released. They're hoping that people will see it and see a whole lot of nothing in there, basically. And, and as you said earlier, some anti-Trump bias proving that this is all the witch hunt that he that he keeps saying. So, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how fast they get those documents released and then right. obviously what's, what's in all that stuff. Yeah, it seems clear they want this done before the election. Whether that's actually how this plays out, we, again, we're in uncharted territory. Kyle Cheney, congressional reporter for Politico. Thank you very much for joining us. Great to be here, Dr. Thanks for having me. Why on earth would they leave this area in mass? They all go to this place in the middle of nowhere that from satellite pictures just looked like had nothing. And there wouldn't be out there the kind of fish and animals that sharks eat. Joining us now is Peter Fimright, environmental writer for the San Francisco Chronicle. We're going to be talking about one of my favorite animals. I think everybody enjoys sharks and shark week when it comes around once a year. It's always a fun time. But scientists just discovered a mysterious great white shark layer in the Pacific Ocean. It's called the Great White Cafe. What did they find out there? They didn't just discover it. They'd known about it, but they just visited it for the first time. And what they found was a huge underwater community of small fish and squid and various other odd animals adapted to darkness deep down where the uh, sharks apparently dive in uh, specific patterns. And it was interesting that the sharks make it to this area because it's kind of in the middle of nowhere between Baja, California and Hawaii. And it's not really a lot of the main food sources that these sharks generally eat. So it was kind of a curiosity as to why they would be migrating there during the springtime. Yeah, it was. And it's still kind of a curiosity. Uh, and they normally, from about August to December, they're in the around the Fairlawn Islands and around in the Red Triangle around the Bay Area from uh, around Marin County to Santa Cruz. And there's plenty of fish for them. There's plenty of sea lions and elephant seals and otters for them to eat. And that's generally what they feed upon. And yeah, it was a curiosity. Why on earth would they leave this area in mass? They all go, apparently, to this 
place in the middle of nowhere that from satellite pictures just looked like it had nothing. It was in the middle of the ocean and there wouldn't be out there the kind of fish and animals that sharks eat. So scientists were very curious to find out why they went out there and they got some pretty interesting clues. And it also takes them about a month to get out there. So it's like a, you know, it's a long time for them to be migrating just to go to this weird spot that we weren't figuring out what was happening. Who conducted the research and how were they tracking the sharks? Well, it was the Stanford, uh, it was Barbara Block, who was the lead scientist with Stanford, the Hopkins Research Center and um, Research Laboratory and the Monterey Bay Aquarium. And they were, led a group of, I think it was, it was several uh, different research institutions that were on this research vessel that went out there. The portion of this area where it was really interesting was uh, what they were calling the Midwater, which is a region where it's just on the edge of complete darkness and right above that. And that's why the sharks were diving down. And that was the other part of the curiosity. Were they going down there for food and maybe trying to change up the diet, get some of these squid and other small fish that were there? But they were tracking them and they kept diving up and down. And there was also differences in the male and female sharks and what they were doing yeah, that's true. And the diving behavior, it does seem like they're, they must be eating something and they're tracking this midwater area where there's a, a lot of small fish, but it's not clear what the sharks are eating and whether there's a mating component to this. And that's why the diving behavior was so interesting to them. And the males they would all start off just diving uh, down deep and then coming up. During the day, they'd dive deep, and at night, they'd dive fairly shallow. And then suddenly, the males in about April started changing their behavior and rapidly diving deep, as many as 140 times a day, constantly. And the females kept their same behavior. The reason for that is still a mystery. They were able to gather a lot of data this time. It was like a month-long expedition that they did. And they, you know, got a, a bunch of different readings from different tags they had attached to a lot of these sharks. And they're hoping some of this information will lead to more knowledge about how species are adapting to climate change. As we said, it, it was weird that they were migrating to this area to begin with just because their food source is different. But they're hoping to learn more about climate change and how these species are adapting there. Yeah, this is a barely understood region of the ocean, sort of a deep water right above and below the zone where uh, light can penetrate. And until recently, scientists didn't know really anything about this area. And recent research, they've discovered new, many new species, and they don't quite understand understand how things work, but it apparently the migration up and down in the water column is something they want to study and how they adapt, like you say, how they adapt to climate change will be a, a big thing and what changes in this uh, cold, deep water area happen as climate change happens and during El Nino's, things like that is all, all things that they'll be studying. And they do this every year. When are they heading out to the uh, White Shark Cafe? The sharks, they all leave the Farallon Islands region and the Bay Area at, in around, at around in December. And uh, it takes them a month to get there. And they're there from uh, late winter through spring and into summer before they turn back for also for unknown reasons and head back here. That's so interesting. I'm excited to see what the researchers are going to end up coming out with once they have a chance to really go through all of the data that they have. So it's uh, it's just fun stuff. And 
you never know with sharks. They're always surprising you, always doing something different. Peter Fimwright, environmental writer for the San Francisco Chronicle. Thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you. All right, that's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive.